This is my iPad. I've been using it recently because it can be as big as my Bible for verses. It can be different documents, orders of service, sermon notes. So I've been using it more than I used to up here. Now, it's big as an iPad goes, but it's small compared to, let's say, this piano, this baby grand piano we've had for so long. So um, I know that's a silly thing to say, but bear with me. Even though it's much smaller than the piano, if I walk over here and I put it in front of my face, I cannot see the piano. Not one inch of the piano. I, I, I just can't see it at all. I can move closer. I still can't see the piano at all. Not one corner of it. I move a little closer. Oh, I can start to see the edges of the piano now. But right here, I can see none of it. And the further back I go, the worse that is. Which has led me to the scientific conclusion, because, you know, I want to be analytical. It's led me to the conclusion that, that this iPad, therefore, is bigger than the piano. You know, right? Because, I mean, obviously it blocks the whole view, so it's bigger. That's what I figured out. So you'll be impressed with how my deductive reasoning works. It's very sharp. Um, here's my point. Obviously, the iPad's not bigger than the piano. It's not a size issue. It's an issue of proximity. Because the iPad, though it's much smaller, is closer to me. Though it's much smaller than the piano, it can block my entire view of the piano. It's a proximity issue, not a size issue. You understand what I'm saying? We've been talking in this sermon series that we just started a couple weeks ago. We've been talking about the subject of eclipsed and how we block the light that we are called to reflect. We've talked about how that Jesus said that he is the light of the world. But we know maybe in our own lifetimes when we did not see him, we did not know him. We were in the darkness. And at any point in our lives, people can find themselves in a spot where they don't see God. They don't see his light. And in those moments, um, it's like, like on our planet when we're turned the other way at nighttime, away from the sun, the sunlight does no good to us when we're facing the wrong direction. And many people uh, who are in the dark, they don't see the light of the sun. But the moon's a beautiful thing because when the moon's out, if it's in the right spot, it's catching the light of the sun. And if it's in the right spot, it's in the spot where it's reflecting it back and causing light, not its light, there's no moonlight, so to speak, but the sunlight reflecting off the moon brings light into the dark spaces of the world. And so I've said all along in this series that we are called to be the moon. We're called to be the moon. We're called to be a people who, who have experienced the light of God and his love and are in such a spot in this world that as God's light shines in our life, we have put ourselves in a spot where others can see that and it can sh shine into their life and into their darkness. But again, oftentimes instead of being in a spot where we can benefit ourselves and others with God's love in our lives and God's light in our lives, sometimes we get in the wrong position and we kind of get between God's light and other people and we eclipse it. Because we become about other things that when people who don't know the Lord look to see him, they may look to see people who call themselves Jesus followers. And when they see us and we're about other things and other passions and other, you know, you know, things that we're all about, that those things can block their view of God and they can get the wrong message. And you say, well, how can I possibly eclipse something as big as God in someone's life? But again, it's not always about size. It's about proximity. Then if someone doesn't know the Lord and you seem close to them, then your, your reflection on what God's about might seem big enough to them to make them say, well, if that's what Christians are all about or that's what Christians are like, I don't need God. And that's not fair to God, but we can block that light we're called to reflect. We can eclipse it. 
And so we're called to be the moon, but not an eclipsing one, but one that gives light and reflects light in the darkness. So two weeks ago, we set this up, and I told you my journey uh, coming out of a very fundamentalist background and how God had to, you know, I found myself in the ministry. God called me out, and, and it was a, everyone enjoyed that because it was my story, our church's old story from many years ago. Last week, we kind of got into our business, and we talked about how we let politics sometimes be an eclipse. So people look at us as Christians, and they see our political fervor and our political anger and our political arrogance and our political opinions. They think, oh, that's what Jesus people are all about. Those are their politics. And that can be an eclipse that can literally block. Someone's, they say, well, they don't see the message of God. They see Christian means politically angry this way, right? And it's an eclipse. Now, it was probably more fun week one. In fact, someone uh, uh, jokingly said to me on the way out last week, they said, I enjoyed week one more than week two. And we laughed about that because it's true. I mean, week one was, a, you know, just get the popcorn and hear the story. Last week was how we're causing an eclipse by being about the wrong things and the wrong messaging that people who need to see God in us aren't seeing his message or seeing our other messages. So it was kind of pointed last week. It's pointed as we've been sometimes ever because I never talk politics at all. And we just talked about our attitude, really, not about our, our, anyone's beliefs. Anyhow, I wanted to continue to talk about different eclipsing issues for the next few weeks. But for today, we made a decision this week to punt my planned conversation today and punt it till next week. Because I wanted to follow up what we discussed last week on our political eclipses with a, not to talk about that, but talk about something that relates to that. So I'm going to make this, I don't usually do this, I'm going to say this, please come next week, because next week we're going to talk about something that's very important to us as a church in this series that I wanted to do today. It's next Sunday. I hope you'll be here. It's a very important topic for us to discuss at Lighthouse and in our community. But for today, I want to just pause and say before we talk about anything else in maybe the next couple of weeks or so that can be eclipsing issues in our modern lives to our central message of God's love and God's light, because we discussed one, politics, last week, I want to kind of stop right here and give you some groundwork to take with you both for last week and for upcoming weeks in the future. Because as I said before, we are so divided. We are so divided. There's so much tribalism. Everyone gets into their team and we're so tribal in, in things we, how we see the world. And we get stuck in our own little informational silos, don't we? And our little informational silos tell us what we ought to think and, and listen to our sources. And, and we don't understand how someone could be in a different space and here have a completely different set of information. And we don't get how they don't see it our way. But we're stuck in our tribe and our silos. And it's an echo chamber that just tells us and, and, and echoes off each other and, and magnifies the experts within our silo. And, and, and we don't even listen to, to other opposing views unless we find bad the worst examples of opposing views to soundbite against them, you know, to say, see how stupid they are? Don't listen to anything else. Just look at this example that makes them look stupid. That's why they're all dumb. That's why we are the way we are. And we get stuck in our echo chamber. Everything that happens becomes confirmation bias. And ultimately, in our tribes, it becomes a zero-sum game where we can never let the other team score a point because they have to lose so we can win. So it's all, it's all this nonsense, Right? And it's horrible, and it's, it's causing so much, and we're, because of it, we're more divided than ever. And this is true in any area of difference. It could be politics like last week. It could be where there's racial differences of opinions and racial tension. It could be about race. It could be a gender. It can be church brand. When I say church brand, you know what I mean? Like, 
What church brand are you? Well, I'm Baptist, I'm Lutheran, I'm Presbyterian, I'm this, I'm that. It could be, it could be brand, you know, whatever you're like, oh, we're the right ones, you know, I'm the right one, and you're wrong for not being in my brand. You know, it's, it's really dumb when churches fight about brand. It's like we're like, you know, fighting about, like we're like salt of the earth, the Bible says, but we're more like in our salt shaker, like Morton's is the best, you know, and not doing anything with it. But anyhow, um, Whatever the, the differences are, church brand, race, gender, politics, you name a thousand other issues, when we get in our little tribes and, and someone who's not sitting where we're sitting, the differences between us becomes the aisle. They're across the aisle. Whatever those issues are, it's, it becomes a mess. And as Jesus followers, we should be, to all people, a reflection that's not us versus anybody. It's not us versus them on anything. You versus anybody else. It should be all of us who all need a Savior, who has a God who loves us, and we want to invite others with us to believe in him and trust in him and follow him. We're called to be the moon. But we get into the wrong side, and that eclipses what we're supposed to be about and kills our witness. So we discussed that a lot, and we're going to talk about how do we deal? How do we address this problem? How do we deal with the differences between us and other people? So before I get into the, all the notes there's a lot to throw at you. The kitchen sink is being thrown today. So as we throw a lot out here, just a couple things before I go any further. Please understand something. You cannot change anyone else. You just can't do it. You can't change anyone else. Some of the, people make mistakes thinking they can change other people. Some people get married thinking, well, I know there's some problems with them, but I'm just going to get married and then they're stuck and then I'll change them after we're married. How does that ever work out? Right? Um, you can't. You try to change other people, and what ends up happening is this. You end up being frustrated yourself, and they end up being annoyed, and it's all big, hot mess. Only you can change you, and only God can work in your life to change you, and only God can work in someone else's life to change them. You can't change anyone else. And, and when you let go of that, you know, you can ask God to use you to do your part if someone's letting him lead them to do your part, to be a part of an influence on their journey, but you can't change them. You just got to play a role of influence that God allows you to have, and they allow you to have. But you also can't be best friends with everyone. Someone said to me this last week, they were telling me a story. They said, I have a friend who is on a different political spectrum than me. And they, we used to be the same, but then time has changed, and they're on the opposite political spectrum. And they'll tell me all their opinions, which I don't agree with, but we get along because when they say their piece, I just listen and I'm polite. And so they think we're fine, so we get along. But if I were to ever say my piece to them of how I saw it, they would blow up and it would be over over. We wouldn't be friends anymore. So I just have to be quiet and it's hard to be friends with somebody that I can't be myself with because they can be themselves and I can let them, but I can't be myself or they wouldn't put up with it. How do you handle that? And here's my thought. Here's my statement. Obviously, you can't be best friends with everybody. I think you could, I think you could be very good friends with people you have some differences with. I do think that's very possible. But you both have to be mature enough to say, I can see past our differences. And some people can't. So in that situation, you understand you're not going to be best friends with everybody. But you know what? We can all be friendly to everyone. We can be friendly to everybody, even if we can't let our hair down or guard down around some people. We can be the kind of person to them, but if they won't return or reciprocate the kindness over our differences, you can't relax around them. You can still be friendly, even if you can't be best friends. We should all be friendly. Now, um, you can do your part to make the world a better place. Here's the important reminder. You can be different 
without being divided. I know that's hard to believe today's culture. I know you can't. Yes, you can. You can be different without being divided. We're going to talk about how that looks today a little. This is, our, this is our break in the series to discuss all these eclipsing issues and these differences, how we can be different and not be divided with people to, where the, to the point where we cut off half of our audience with the message of God's love because of our differences. This is true in any area. So I'm going to give you several suggestions today, and I want to examine several passages of Scripture. I'm going to give you like seven statements on the screen, plus some extra statements, but seven points and some statements, and some Bible verses. I encourage you to take, you know, write them down or take a picture of the screen, or if you're watching online, take a screenshot. Uh, thank you for watching online, by the way. I saw some, a bunch of you on there earlier. Um, if you um, could, you know, take notes today. These are some Bible study tools for this week. You can study these verses during your devotions this week. You can think about these points this week. So write this stuff down because I'm going to throw a lot at us today kind of as a transitionary sermon in our series. How do we deal with our differences with other people um, who are in a different spot than us? Number one is this. Examine your heart. Number one, examine your heart. That's the only heart you can examine. We can't see other people's hearts, can we? It's a dangerous game when we try to figure out what's in someone else's heart. What happens then is we start doing things like saying to, you know, your spouse, uh, you walked into the room and didn't say hi to me. True. Therefore, you hate me. Wait, what? You know, I went from a true statement, you didn't say hi when you walked past, to the assumption that I know your heart and you hate me. You know, you didn't show me a kindness. Therefore, you must be seeing someone else. Like, whoa, that's a big jump. You know, or whatever it may be. You know, and that's an extreme example in a close relationship. But the ultimate problem is when we see people we disagree with, we're good at saying they see the world that way because they're evil. They see the world that way because they're part of an evil conspiracy or they're part of this or they're bad or whatever. We see everyone through, we examine their heart and we can't know their heart. Examine your heart. What's in our heart? What makes us the way we are? James chapter 4 and verse 1. James, by the way, was the half-brother of Jesus. He was Jesus' brother. Did not believe on Jesus until after Jesus died and rose again. Then he became a follower and a leader in the early church. James, he wrote this. He said, what is causing the quarrels and the fights among you? He knows the answer. It's a rhetorical question. What's causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? Now, we say, well, there's no evil desires in me. Evil's a big, bad word. But notice the word desires. What he's saying is, there's a bunch of stuff that you want. You want what you want in your relationship. And you want the world to work the way you work in the country, to work the way you want the country to work and people to do what you want in your circle, at your job. You have desires. And those desires are so passionate and at war within you that they cause all your quarrels and all your fights because you have some desires that are going to grow beyond desires to something that's more ominous than that. Verse 2, he says, you want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. So we've just discussed this passage studying the book of James before uh, in a recent series. But I want to say this real quick. He says, you're all busy looking at everywhere but God. Instead of turning to God with your desires and figuring out what you're supposed to do with them, you're so busy saying, yeah, yeah, God's there, but I'm going to get what I want. I'm going to fight for it. And we have the wrong heart and the wrong approach. And even when you do ask, even when you do ask God, 
You don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You, you only want what will, will give you pleasure. You want your way. You want things to go your way in your home, in your job, in your neighborhood, in your family, in your church, in your um, school, in your country. You want what you want. You want what you want. That's the bottom line. And I can, I can play the God card, but in, but in the end, what I want is what's going to come through here. I'll just use God as my, my, my uh, you know, power, my power card. But I want what I want. And he says, that's the problem, isn't it? And then he says something interesting that we might not think applies here, but I don't want to skip it. Verse 4, you adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. And again, that's a big statement that we've talked about in our James series before. Quickly in our context today, I want to say this about it. When we decide to say, God, I, I'm not about what you want. I'm all about the things of this world I want, the stuff of this world, the positions of this world, the, 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 the getting ahead, money, power, in my way, my, my system, whatever it may be, and you got to fight dirty. you got to fight like the world to win in the world. We become very worldly people. And as I said last week, don't be conformed to this world. But, but God says when you, when you get so worldly about your focus and how you get what you want, you've, you've put yourself on the wrong side of God. Do you think, verse 5, do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. God is passionate that what he's placed in you, that spirit he's placed in you, should be faithful to him. The problem with some of us is our spirit is like, yeah, yeah, God, he's there. He's got his little, his little box, and I give him his time so that he will bless my life. But I'm passionate for my, my whatever, this cause I'm all about, this issue I'm all focused in on, this, this thing. And it's, it's what drives, what consumes us, what makes us think, and, and what we text about, what we post about on Facebook, what, we, what we're all known for. Guys, I wish your passions were with me. My passions are with you. I wish you were faithful to me. I wish, I wish your focus was what I'm trying to do. Is of all these other things that you're all worked up about that are less important, I put my spirit in you to be faithful to me. But we get worldly trying to get ahead in this world. I said, number one, examine your heart. Number two, acknowledge that you may be wrong. This is a hard one. We're like, well, Arlen, I'm never wrong. Because if I was wrong... This is true, right? This is true. If I was wrong, if I realized all of a sudden I was wrong, then I would change, and then I would be right so that I've so I'm not wrong, right? No, no, I'm not. Isn't it weird how a bunch of us could be in the same room and have different views about how the world should be on different issues? And all of us are so convinced that we're right. You're like, well, someone's wrong. Yes, they are. <laughs> yes, they are wrong, right? Someone's wrong. Could it be me? No, it couldn't be me. I'm never wrong. But what if I'm wrong? What if, what if my view is wrong? Is there, is there room in my, in my theology to believe that I don't have a corner on the truth? That I'm going to get to heaven someday and find out that I, it wasn't just me and God and everyone else was an idiot? You know? Acknowledge that, that you may be wrong. But you've got to be able to look at yourself through the same critical lens that you put other people through. Jesus preached a famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. Preached it probably everywhere he went. We know it from the time he preached it on the Mount. And in that sermon, the last leg of that sermon, Matthew 7, Jesus says this. He says, do not judge others and you will not be judged. Do not judge others and you will not be judged. Verse 2, uh, for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. There's a lot to unpack there, and we're not studying the Sermon on the Mount. But I want to point out that, that we kind of set the rules. 
relationally, don't we? Like if you're a person who, who is harsh, when people are wrong in your opinion and you're upset about your issues and, and people who don't see it your way, then you'll be treated accordingly. That's just how it works. By people and God. God says, we'll play, your, we'll play in your sandbox. How do you want to play this way? You decide how you treat other people you disagree with and we'll, we'll work that way. People will treat you that way. It's just going to be how it goes. And then he makes an interesting analogy that we, we can't rush past in verse 3. He says, why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own eye? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with a speck in your friend's eye. Now, when we read those verses, I think the temptation is to say, well, that's not for me because it's just the log is in their eye. It's only a speck in my eye. I might not be perfect. There's a speck in my eye, but there's a whole log in their eye, right? We tend to see it through that lens. And what I want to challenge you to think about for a minute is that, again, it's proximity. What's in your eye ought to be like a log. I'm going to tell you right now, when something gets in my contact lens, it might be the smallest thing, but if it's bothering my contact lens, I'm not, I'm not a pleasant person to be around until I can deal with it. And it's not fun, right? I mean, it's like, what in the world? And it can be the littlest thing, but it feels like a massive thing. We need to look at our, our, our personal lives and say, where are my problems at? Those need to be the bigger deal to us. And you, we want to walk around and help other people see clearly. I got to help them see it the way it is. But we're not seeing clearly. We're not seeing what's causing our view to be obscured by our wrong viewpoints or maybe our right viewpoints, but our wrong attitude about our right viewpoints. And that's the log in our eye. And I can't do anything for anybody else until I deal with my own stuff first. And then, once I've mastered that, well, then maybe I'm in a better position to help somebody else. Now, I was going to skip this verse, but it's too good. We often misread it, so I gotta, I, I've got to at least give it a moment here. Verse 6. He says, don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. They will trample the pearls and then turn and attack you. Now, before you misunderstand the verse in the context, what he's saying is, if you've decided that you've finally gotten the log out of your eye, and, someone, and, and now you're perfect and they're still wrong, you have the answers all figured out, and you've dealt with yourself, and now, now it's just them, and they don't want to hear it, let it go. You can't change anyone. Don't, don't, don't try. And it's, like, it's like you can't, you're not doing any good. How many of you figured out a long time ago that when you get on social media and you post your opinion in all caps locks that no one comes back to you and says, oh man, I changed my mind because you yelled at me. That was so awesome. I, I see the light now. Or even if you didn't yell, they're like, oh man, I just, you know, just, if you don't want to hear, they don't want to hear. And it's like going to a pig pen and taking a bunch of pearls and saying, y'all, pigs look dirty. I can make your life a whole lot better. Here's some pearls. Hey, you're, you're, you're trampling on them. You don't appreciate them. They're getting dirt. Well, what did you expect them to do? They don't appreciate the pearls. And, and if someone doesn't appreciate what you think they ought to appreciate, then they don't, then why waste your time? Now, this is not a verse. Let me pause here. What Jesus is not saying is he's not saying, be a jerk and say to people, I would tell you my opinion, but I'm going to cast my pearls before pigs. This is not a burn your, I love how we use the Bible to do that, right? This is not a, you know, tell people they're pigs verse. It's an analogy to say, as ridiculous as that would be to do, cast your pearls to pigs, is as ridiculous as you to run around and think that you're going to give someone something they don't appreciate and think it's their problem instead of yours. It's your problem. You're the one who did it. 
So it's not a verse to condescend on somebody. It's a reminder to us that fix what's in your own eye. Fix your, clean your, your own backyard. And if someone wants to ask you about it, help them. But if they don't, then don't waste your time. Now, this reminds me of an old statement. Um, it's not Bible, but it could be because it's such a great statement. By George Bernard Shaw. He, he, George Bernard Shaw once said, don't wrestle with a pig. You just get dirty and the pig enjoys it. And that's some great advice for all of us. Sometimes we're like, you get, like, you know, get into a fight match with somebody or some issue publicly. And you're going to at some point have to back out of the fight or you're going to look, you're going to have to get either really extra dirty to win or stop, stop and lose along the way. And then if someone's that way, they're going to enjoy. Just stop. Just stop. Anyhow, I said number one, examine your heart. Number two, acknowledge you may be wrong. Practical advice about dealing with our differences. Number three today, number three, this is a big point. And if I had to make any of my points the major point, it would be this one or the next one, maybe the last one. But this is a big one. Ready? Call out your side first. Again, I'll say it again, no matter what the issue is. Race, gender, church brand, politics, whatever. Whenever you find yourself in one section of ideology or seats and someone else in a different one, the differences between you are like an aisle. And everyone's real good at pointing out what's wrong on the other section. No one's good at calling out their own side. So let's pick on like Republicans, Republicans and Democrats for, in politics for a minute, hearkening back to last week. Team R likes to look at Team D and say, uh, look at the craziest people, the most extreme people on your side. You know, you should all call them out. And that's what's wrong with all of you. That's what's wrong with all of your team is those people. And this leader I don't agree with of yours is horrible. And you should like be all, you know, down on them like we are and throw them out. To, and this is what's wrong with you. But then at the same time, if, if we have leaders that are messed up, we're like, hey, no one's perfect. And you're just picking on us and, you know, stop that. And our extremes, don't judge us by them. And we're going to defend that. We're real good at kind of just defending our side and call, pointing out the problems across the aisle. And you know what that gets you? Nowhere. And the team D does the same thing to team R. Everyone does this to each other. And it doesn't work. No one gets anywhere. No one's convinced. Like, oh, man, thanks for pointing out our flaws from your side of the aisle. Now I see the light. It just causes further division. And everyone's busy running around pointing fingers, and no one's getting anywhere. It'd be so amazing. I mean, it'd be so awesome to see someone say, hey, we're wrong. This is not acceptable from one of our leaders. This is not acceptable from one of our leaders. This is not acceptable from one of um, from our some of the crazies in our camp. That's not what we're about. We're going to rebuke that instead of defending ourselves. We're going to rebuke that and say that's wrong. And if you something good, we'll praise you. I mean, we're not. We're just going to call our side first. That's so good. Now, I, I hesitated to tell this story because I don't have much context for it. But I was just trying to think about how to illustrate this without getting a, down the road further here. But um, 10 years ago or so, um, you know, I was, I, was, I was raised in a very strict church, fundamentalist background, very bubblish, and it was very, you know, the world we knew, very evangelically fundamental, very, you know, white man in a white man's world. And there was a lot of shooting going on at the time, people sh shooting other people in public. There still is, which is another conversation that is not a rabbit shell I want to get on other than to say, why do we always grip about our issue on gun violence either side instead of taking a moment to grieve with a, with a, with a hurting? We never take time. Before we sit there and say, oh, I'm so sorry. You lost a loved one to violence. I'm so sorry. I'm praying for you. We're busy saying, you know, 
our politics, and we're fighting about it, and it's just tragic. But anyhow, um, gun violence, about 10 years ago, there was a lot of gun violence that was racially motivated at that time. So there was a, like a little flurry of it. And, of course, in my little white evangelical Baptist world that I was in, and I heard a lot of people griping about the other race's problem with gun violence, or with violence against, because they're, you know, the racial problems pointing fingers. And I didn't say a word because that just seemed unproductive and unhelpful to the problem. And then, back in about 10 years ago, I can't remember when now, uh, there was a young man, a young white man who went into a, a black church in North Carolina on a Wednesday night, remember the story? And he, halfway through the service, opened, shot and killed a bunch of, of parishioners there. A white guy killing a bunch of, 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 of black church attenders. And so I was waiting for all of my loudmouth friends who talk about racial violence to say something about it. Not a word. Crickets. So I get out there and I post a whole post about how I'm like, I'm like, hey, this is wrong. If I'm going to point out racial hate in our hearts, this is my chance. Because it was, it was committed by a white person, and I'm a white person, so I'm going to call it, I can call, I can call it the problem without pointing fingers across the spectrum. So I'm like, that was wrong, and we got to deal with the race in our hearts. we got to do better than that. And to my surprise, I had people in the church world, friends in the church world, who came back and said, uh, we're mad at that. They're like, oh, you know, the other side does it more than we, and all this nonsense. And I'm like, what in the world? Where is, why can't we just sit there and say, hey, this is a problem in general, and we blew it, uh, someone on our side of the, of, the, of the aisle blew it here. And he said, it shouldn't be an aisle, Arlen. I agree, but when there's, I'm saying whenever there's tension in any group, call out your side of the tension first. Do that in politics. Do that in anything. Do that in, in, in any part of your life. Say, hey, if you're a guy, remember how women, the problem with gender, you know, issues and, you know, women and feminism. Really, really guys? You got a lot of opinions about that? Well, call it your side. What are men supposed to do? I'm a man, so it's easier for me to talk to the men than the women. And if you're a woman, do the same for the girls. As a man, I'm busy saying to the guys, guys, be responsible, treat your wives right, love your wife, take care of your wife, don't do fraudulent, don't ruin your wife, don't crush your wife. I have a low threshold of kindness for husbands who, who, who uh, tr treat women poorly. I'm a man. Whether it's your sister, your mother, your daughter, your wife, your ex-wife, anybody else, be a Christian and be a man. I expect that. Because I'm a man. Call out your side first. Why don't we do that? Imagine how, if politics did that, how much better things would be. It'd be shocking. Like, what? Which brings me to my next point. And this is, a big, this is also a big one. Strive to see their position clearly. Strive to see their position clearly. We don't see other people's positions clearly because I said we're tribal and we're in our own information silos. And so we hear what, what we're told to hear. We're like, hey, don't listen to them. But here's a little sound bite, a little snippet. Of, of what they did that sounds really easy to argue against. Here's a little tidbit of what they did that looks easy to put down. And that's all you need to know about them. That's their whole view. Isn't that easy to put down? They're wrong, we're right, stay in our lane. And I think, we think we know the other side's position because we've been listening to our people and our echo chamber tell us their position. Quit believing someone else has a position based upon people in your echo chamber telling you their position. My advice is to actually go over and listen to people on the other side. There's two ways to do that, really. One is to read, read and listen to the best arguments from a different position. Not just some, you know, bad argument that we make fun of, but listen to their best orators, their best writers, their best arguments, and, and say, convince me. 
And the other thing to do is to sit down and have lunch with somebody like you, a regular person who's trying to be a good husband, wife, parent, citizen, pay their bills, work well. They're like you. You see they're a good person, but they have a different ideology in some area than you. And sit down and say, hey, I'm not here to criticize you or change you. I'm here to ask you questions. How do, why do you see it the way you do it? No judgment. I want to know. I want to learn. Strive to see their position clearly. We don't do this very well, but we should. And I think it's, I don't know why we don't. It's like we're afraid of having our position challenged, I think. So 20 years ago, after 9-11, um, there was kind of what they call the rise of the new atheism. A bunch of people began to write books kind of in, in repulsion against people blowing up buildings in the name of God. And there was a bunch of books written by atheists that were really well written. Uh, Richard Dawkins wrote one. I can't remember what it's called today. Um, I have it on my bookshelf. Richard Dawkins wrote a book uh, against Christianity, uh, uh, arguing for that there is no God. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, who's now dead, wrote a book called God is Not Great. And then Sam Harris, the American atheist, wrote a couple books on atheism and Letters to a Christian Nation. I, I bought them all. There. I'm, I've read them all, and they're on my shelf. And you say, well, why'd you do that? Because I wanted to know the most convincing arguments against my faith. Um, some time ago, I also, I was watching Christians get upset around that same time with Islam and Christianity versus, you know, Islam. And the Quran was, you know, the Quran teaches violence, you know. And I'm like, okay, does the Quran teach violence and blowing up buildings and that kind of stuff? And so I'm like, well, you know, I'm not going to take my belief on that from someone's Facebook post who's on, on my Christian side of the aisle cherry-picking a handful of verses from the Quran to make them look bad. Folks, that's easy to do. You can do that to your, your Bible, your, New Test your Old Testament. I can take a hand-pick a few cherry-pick verses out of your Old Testament right now, make Christianity look really, really bad. I'm just being honest here. So I'm like, maybe that's, maybe that's what they're all about. But have I ever read the Quran? No, I haven't. So I went and I did the research, found a good English translation, and I bought a copy of the Quran. And I've been working through it for a long time. I'll be honest with you, it's hard. It's, I find it very boring. Full disclosure, the Old Testament's pretty boring too, but I've read that more, so I'm used to it. But anyhow, I've, I've been reading it through because I want to know where are our differences. And I want to talk to people. And, and I, the problem is that some are like, Harlan, you can't listen to the other side's uh, you know, why they believe what they believe or why they have their, why their ideology is that way politically. You can't do that because if you listen to that, you might change your mind. You might change what you believe. You can't do that. I'm like, what's wrong? Hey, if you have the truth, the truth can handle the scrutiny, man. If you got the truth, it can handle it. Right? Why are we afraid of the light being shined on our beliefs? Are we afraid our beliefs can't hold up? I think sometimes our in our insecurity of having our assumptions challenged reflects on us that we don't really have faith in what we have faith in. We're afraid that's so flimsy that if it's tried, it won't stand the test and it will collapse. And so we protect it and guard it and yell really loud when something challenges it because we don't know what else to do because we're afraid it can't withstand the scrutiny. If I'm wrong, I want to be right. And if I'm right, I want to be confident in it. Why are we afraid? Truth can handle it. So strive to see someone's position clearly and talk to them. Could put it this way, I was, uh, instead of calling them out, hear them out. Um, I didn't put this on the screen, but we could have. If you never go where someone is, how can you expect to understand where they're coming from? So another story, years ago I was in, about, on the same subject, I was in uh, Maryville at a place of business, and I was the only customer in the store, there was one employee in the store, it was a young man, a very young man from the Middle East, who got to talk, and he was a devout Muslim, training to be uh, 
serve his life full-time, Christ, uh, full-time work in the, his Muslim faith. Very devout. And he found I was a Christian pastor. And as he got to talk, and I started asking him questions. I said, hey, what do you guys believe? I started asking him some intelligent questions that I had been doing some reading. And what do you guys think? And hey, what, what's your, how do you handle this? And what do you celebrate this? And why do you do that? And, and he said, I've never seen a Christian, let alone a pastor, ask me these kind of questions so ki- kindly. He said, um, you know, that's really weird. I said, well, I'm reading. The, I said, I have a copy of the Quran. I've been reading it. He goes, you're reading the Quran? I'm like, yeah. Said, I've never heard someone say that to me before. I said, well, yeah, I mean, I just wanted to know what, I wanted to hear it from the source, not from other people's sound bites. And as we talked, he began to ask me questions. And before I was done, I said, could you do me one favor? I said, would you consider reading the New Testament? And he said, you know, I would have never thought I'd say yes to that. But after talking to you, I'm going to do it. I'm going to get, get a copy of the New Testament. I'm going to read it this week. I'm going to read it. Now, I don't know if he did. Did he become a Christian? I don't know. Did I become a Muslim? No. But I'll tell you right now, it changes your whole life when you're willing to strive to see someone else's position clearly, to hear their best arguments. Whatever political hot-button issues you're all worked up about today in culture, listen to the best arguments and talk to people like you who have that lame and say, why are you the way you are? Why do you see it the way you see it? Not judging, I'm just asking. I want to learn, I want to understand. Here's a Bible verse for us to take home today. I love this verse. One of the best verses. Back to James, the brother of Jesus. James 1.19 says this. Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Now that word quick to listen, someone used to say to me, they'd say, um, God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. Right? You've heard that before. Quick to listen. The word quick there it means two things. It means first, in, in order, sequence, to listen. And it also means weightier position. Like in other words, I put a top priority on listening and a lower priority on speaking. Now we're good at the opposite. Quick to speak, quick to get angry, slow to listen. But James says we must be quick to listen. Quick to listen, slow to speak. Know what we're talking about before we have an opinion about something and slow to get angry. So listen to people. Sit where they sit. Hear their best arguments. Try to understand why they are where they are in that issue. Listen and understand it. Here's the thing. Here's the point. This is a lonely path, and I'm going to move on from this point, but I want to say this. This is a lonely path. I'm calling you to loneliness. Because if you ever try to leave your little informational echo chamber in your silo to go across the great landscape to listen to the, with the other side's best arguments and have a kind of dialogue there, no one on the other side even knows you exist or trusts you. And no one in your silo is going to sit there and say, yeah, go for it. You're going to be a lonely soul. But that's okay. We should make a point to listen see their position clearly. Or as someone used to say, people want to know how much you care before they care how much you know. If you don't even care to know what they know, you probably don't care very much at all. Number five, moving along, number five, change if you're wrong, show mercy and grace if you aren't. Now, in other words, if you've done some research and you've come to the conclusion, wow, I've had a wrong position, change. Those are the, well, I'm just sentimental to my bad ideas. I'd rather be right than sentimental. Change if you're wrong. 
And if you decide afterwards, nope, I still have the right view, show mercy and grace if you aren't. And here's what I mean by that. No matter what, if you listen to other people's viewpoints and understand where they're coming from, it will always change you. If it doesn't change your position, it should at least change your disposition. Does that make sense? It should at least cause you to say, I might not change my position, but I at least understand why you are in that boat. I can see how you got there. I'm not going to demonize you anymore or decide that you're horrible because you don't see it my way. I understand because I've listened. So I didn't change my position, but my disposition says I'm for you or I'm kind to you. I got grace for you and mercy. I'm going to give you the grace and mercy I want someone to give to me who thinks I'm wrong. Number seven, six. See the good in your common ground. We all have common ground. You can find common ground with anybody. We're human beings. We all bleed. We all want the same dreams. There's common ground with anybody in the world. Don't just find the common ground. See the good in your common ground. I've talked to people before, and we disagreed with each other about some issue and, and what's best ideologically. But you know what I said to them? I said, you know what? We might disagree on, what's, on, on what to do here, but can we both agree that what's best for people is what's best? Oh, absolutely. We both agree. We both agree that what's best for people is what's best. So even though we don't agree what's best, we both agree that we're trying to get there. And you say, well, that doesn't change your differences. I know, but it's a place to find some common ground and find some good in the common ground because we always tend to, get angry and demonize people we disagree with. If you're a believer, you know the common ground. If you're a Jesus follower, you know the common ground, that we are all sinners. That God so loved the world that he gave his son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That any of us today either have or can as people who have sinned, turn to God and experience forgiveness and new life. And we should want that for ourselves and want that for others who haven't had it and celebrate with those who have. That's common ground. That's what it's all about for all humanity. That's the big message. That's the light. The gospel is the main thing. And as I always say, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. I'm going to review my points before I give you number seven. I said, number one, examine your heart. Number two, acknowledge that you may be wrong. Number three, call out your side first. That would change a lot right there. This would all, number four would too. Number four, strive to see their position clearly. Number five, change if you're wrong and show grace and mercy if you aren't. If that's your decision in the end. Number six, see the good in your common ground. And number seven, this is a big one, look to serve people that you disagree with. I can't tell you how good it is. We, it's easy to, to get in our little bubbles and, and look at everything as an issue and be mad at issues. Sometimes when you're attacking issues, people feel that you're attacking them. And you don't see the people because you're attacking the issue. But you get busy serving people and the people you disagree with, and it can change your heart. It changes your heart to serve people that you disagree with. It changes your heart to get down there and roll up your sleeves and, and do what's good for them. You know, that's exactly what Jesus did for you and me. We were sinners, and he served us. This is not a point. This is not one of my seven points, but can I summarize them all this way? In, in summary, be a peacemaker. That does not mean launch a peacemaker missile at somebody, in case you're into that. Be a peacemaker. Here's one last Bible verse for today. Um, it's found in Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verse 9. Jesus said, 
God blesses those who work for peace. For they will be called the children of God. Isn't that interesting wording there, by the way? Those who work for peace. Isn't that interesting wording? Isn't it true you have to work for peace sometimes? Like, for me to find peace with somebody, i got to work for it. Like, i got to, because for me, I'll try to make, build a bridge, and then I'll get frustrated by something. I'll, like, I'll step back and get mad again. i got to work for peace. And then if I do, and they're not seeing it, they're not re- reciprocating in kind, they're being difficult, you know. you got to work for peace. That is true. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. In other words, you look like your heavenly father. You ever walk around and someone says, man, you look just like your dad or just like your mom. I can see it in you. You're, you're so-and-so's kid, aren't you? When we work for peace, we reflect the image of our heavenly father. And his, 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 our gospel, which means good news, is the gospel of peace. That's what God did for us. We resemble our Heavenly Father when we work for peace. And I know that's contrary to some of our DNA. Some of our, some of our cultural American Christianity has taught us, you know, kill them all, let God sort them out type mentality about life. That's, that's, that's fine. It sounds real catchy. Your choir will cheer you on when you say such things. But it's not the gospel. In fact, I want to say this about the gospel. If we don't treat people according to the gospel, we are obscuring the gospel. It's easy to come to church and preach to the choir, find people that you feel you all align with and just like rah, rah, rah. Maybe build up a big crowd that way, I don't know. But we've got to do better than that if we're to make a difference in the world. We have a gospel message. We have, it's good news. It's called the good news. That's what gospel means. We have good news. And if we don't treat people according to the gospel, we're obscuring the gospel. Here's what that means. You know how God treated us? We were on the other side of the aisle from him. The divide was there. He created us, we sinned. He's perfect, we're sinners. We went the other way. And across that divide that we created, he stepped across to our side and saw what it was like from our vantage point. Was born as a baby, walked in our shoes, was in all points, uh, suffered the, 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 the struggles of our infirmities and our weaknesses, felt what it was like to be hungry, thirsty, cold, experienced sorrow, loss of, of, of friends. He went through all of our experience so he could understand where we were coming from clearly. And he served us all through his earthly ministry and on his death, he served us, all of us through all, all time. Those who were at odds with him. That's the gospel. That God wants us back more than he wants us to pay. So he paid for us. And if we don't treat people according to the gospel, because we have something else that's more important to us, bless God, we're obscuring the gospel. And for some of us who seem closer in proximity to somebody else than they can see God in their lives, we can block the entire message because our other issues are too big to us. Let's be about the gospel. Otherwise, we'll eclipse it. And let's not eclipse Let's not block the light we're called to reflect. Let's be, let's be the moon. Right? Be the moon. I'm going to pray, and usually after we pray, we take some reflection, quiet time in our seats. I'm going to, we're not going to do that today. As soon as I finish praying, the worship team is going to sing a song. You don't need to sing along for this one because you probably don't know it. It's a new song, but just listen to it. Listen to the words of that song. 
We'll sing one more before we go, as we, as we leave. But uh, listen to the words of that song. Before they come up, after I pray and sing, I want to ask you to help us be proactive. Kind of a, this is kind of a break in the series a little bit. We're going to get back to some eclipsing issues, and it's important for us. Especially, please don't miss next week. But, but I, for, I want to give you some positive action steps today. So here's the positive action steps. In the back, there's two things. First of all, there's car magnets. I offered those last week. They say four-seater lake. That's our vision statement here. We are for people because God is for people. We want to be known for what we're for, not what we're against. Get a for Cedar Lake bumper sticker. Even if you don't live in Cedar Lake, we want to be for our community. Our church is in this community. We want to be, we want to be plugged in uh, to our, our good neighbors to our schools and our district. And just We want to be engaged. So here's the deal. Grab a bumper, a, a, a bumper magnet and, and um, put that in your car, for Cedar Lake. If you didn't get one, grab one today. But we have something else for you back there I want you to take home with you as well. And it is... Um, envelopes and little note cards that say Four Cedar Lake on them and open up there's a note inside. Now I want you to take one or two of these home with you. I'm going to do this again in a couple of weeks a different direction. Two different assignments. This week's assignment is this. Would you take this home with you and would you um, write a note of appreciation to someone in your community that you appreciate this week? Might be someone who serves others and you want them to know that you notice you can do that for anybody, you know, firefighter, school administrator or teacher, anybody. But um, I'm going to ask you to do it, do it for somebody, and it's even more effective, as we said last week in the sermon, if you do it for someone that you disagree with. And, and, and that's even more powerful. By the way, you could do this for Cedar Lake. You could, do this for your, you could do this for your governor, for your president, for anybody. You say, well, it says for Cedar Lake. You just say, well, hey, I was thinking about my community, being for our community, and I thought about what you do for our state or for our country. And I appreciate your service and your years of service and doing, you know, what you try to do your best to, to, to serve others, and I noticed it and I appreciate it. Now you say, well, I don't appreciate it. Remember we said last week in 1 Timothy, we're supposed to pray for all people, especially those in, in leadership. We're supposed to give thanks for them. That's very hard to do if you don't like them. Give thanks for people. So you can write anyone a note of appreciation, but if it's somebody you disagree with, write them a note. And don't write this. Don't say, I don't like or agree with you. You're an idiot, but I'm a bigger person, so I'm writing you a nice note to let you know, aren't I awesome? If that's your tone, just leave the notes on the back table. Please don't do anyone any, just stop. Okay. But if you can take the note and write something like, hey, you know, I'm a Jesus follower. I was, he told us just to think about who, who we're thankful for, and I see what you do. Doesn't, you don't have to say, I disagree with you. If they, you do, you just can say, I see how you serve, and I appreciate it. You are noticed. You see, that's a little thing. What, what, how's that going to change the world? First of all, you, know, you can't change everything. You can do something. Second of all, we discount the little gestures so we don't ever do them. This might, be, this might blow someone's mind. Write a note of appreciation to somebody in the community or abroad and explain that you'd appreciate and you notice and you're thankful. And we'll give you some other things to do along the way. But I want us, I want us to change the, the tone and the temperature in the church as a whole. For far too long, the church has been known for what it's against. We want to be known for what we're for. We are for Cedar Lake. We are for people because God is for people. Let's do this and be the kind of folks God called us to be, to be the moon.